dive into the heart of the Syrian civil war on insurgency unmasked by the modern insurgent. Explore the historical legacy, geopolitical complexities and human impact of the Syrian civil war. From expert insights to gripping narratives, this podcast offers an in-depth understanding of the conflict. Come and journey through the Syrian civil war with the modern insurgent. Welcome to Insurgency Unmasked. We are the modern insurgent, and we are an impartial, independent, and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, reports, scholarly articles, and now podcasts. The first season of Insurgency Unmasked intends to analyse the Syrian civil war and the various factions that have maintained this decade-long conflict. We will speak to journalists, academics, and our very own writers to give the best analysis possible. Today we are speaking to Colin Mayfield, a journalist and photographer about Syria's historical legacy and his journey. So, hello, Colin. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on, especially for our very first episode of Insurgency Unmasked. I'm honored to be here. So, who are you and what do you do? I think is a good start. I am a journalist from the southern United States. I have a focus on social movements, conflict... Uh, political unrest. Uh, my work has covered the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests in the United States, 3D printed firearms, uh, various militia groups domestically within the United States, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the anti-Boko Haram operations in Nigeria, Iranian opposition groups in Iraqi Kurdistan, the YBS in Sinjar in Iraqi Kurdistan, Haitian gangs, and a lot more. So I, uh, I've covered a lot as far as conflict and unrest go, and I hope to cover much more. Mm. And I, I recommend anyone out there listening to follow you on Instagram because the photos that you have got from all of these trips have been absolutely incredible. Everyone Thank I you. know at the Modern Insurgent is obsessed with your account and your photos. So it's Thank definitely you. a follow. I very much appreciate that. So, How did you get started? How did like how did you get the interest for conflict journalism? I well, back in 2019, I worked a summer job. I was working on a farm out in California, and with all the money I made from growing, I decided I was going to go on a Middle Eastern backpacking trip. So it was uh, I went from the cannabis farm of California to the 2019 Lebanon protests. And then from there, I went to the West Bank. Well, of course, I, I flew to Jordan, and then I went to the West Bank. And just those experiences backpacking in that part of the world got me interested in journalism. So I decided that when I went back to school in 2020, I was going to major in journalism. That turned out not to have Honestly, that turned out to have been completely unnecessary. I, I didn't even finish my degree. But 2020, as we all know, the pandemic comes along. And then in the United States, we had the murder of George, George Floyd. And after that, the Black Lives Matter protests just swept the country. So I, I found myself realizing this is the time for me to pick up a camera. I, uh, I went to a lot of protests in Atlanta, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, like after the city announced the decision not to prosecute the police that killed Breonna Taylor. So I was there for that riot. I uh, watched the Black Power Militia, the NFAC, the Not Fucking Around Coalition. I saw them march in uh, Louisville, Kentucky in protest for Breonna Taylor. I also saw them march in Louisiana for Trey Ford Pellerin, who was another black man who was killed by the police. But that was my introduction into journalism three years ago and that's when i started to work as a journalist but i've only been a foreign correspondent for over a year now so almost like you got bought into it by necessity then mm, perhaps i mean the the protests came to my region there was uh i didn't have to go very far to cover a lot of stuff in in my part of the world mm. i mean there's really nothing in auburn alabama for me to photograph <laughs> but Birmingham, Atlanta, Louisville, all the major cities of the South. I was just zigzagging all through 2020. Mm. Definitely a fascinating time to do something like that. 
Yeah, it really was. It was uh, it was interesting because I I didn't really know how to use a camera beforehand. And if you look back at a lot of my twenty twenty photos that aren't archived, a lot of them are pretty horrible. But I, I was learning to shoot manual while also being at these protests and navigating these uh, like riots and protests. And it was a very uh, high stress place to learn how to use a camera. But overall, it's paid off. Certainly. And then how did you find yourself in Syria specifically? Syria has always been a place that's interested me. I've known about it since 2019. Well, before that, I, I knew about the YPG before that, but I had a lot of misconceptions about what was happening in Rojava. Mm. But I, and, you know, I first heard about it, I guess, in 2017, 2016, but I just wrote them off as communists and, uh, I mean, my own personal thoughts have changed a lot since then, but I've also realized that you know, that wasn't the case. And, and in 2019, I started to look at it seriously, and I read about Abdullah Ashalan's ideology of democratic confederalism and what that meant. And uh, I spoke with people who volunteered over there, and I started to learn more about what their ideology stands for and why anarchists from around the world have gone there to volunteer and uh, it's just, it's all ever since I started to learn about it in 2019, 2020, especially in 2020, because a, a lot of other people were talking about it too, because, you know, we have, it was the whole abolish the police uh, rhetoric being espoused at protests. And then people would make comparisons to the Asayish that exist in Kamish or in uh, Rojava. And a, a lot of people started looking at democratic confederalism as an alternative. And I, I, that's also part of where I learned about it. But as I looked into it more and more, it just became a, a place that was just fascinating to me. And I knew I wanted to go. Hmm. And after uh, a couple of successful endeavors, I was able to get financing for it. And uh, yeah, that brought me to Syria. So I flew into Iraqi Kurdistan. I did not stay in Syria nearly as long as I would have liked to, mm. but I, I had other obligations in Iraq. And, uh, you know, there's also the economic factor at play. It's always the case with traveling. Never enough yeah. time. Well, I had an Airbnb in Erbil. So that made Iraqi Kurdistan very easy to work in. Mm. Whereas in Kamishlo, I was having to buy hotels every night, yeah, which will add up fairly quickly. And also I found that in Northeast Syria, fixers, and for anyone who doesn't know, a fixer is like a, a tour guide for a journalist. Fixers do translation, driving, secure access. I mean, fixer means access, basically. Mm. But they're the ones who arrange for you to meet militias, etc., but the fixers I noticed were uh, a bit more expensive in Northeast Syria than uh, the Kurdistan regional government. So that was another reason I spent less time in Syria. Mm. But yeah, it was just it was just always been a place that's been fascinating to me, and I've read uh, I've read some of Ashalan's books, and I wanted to see it for myself and see I wanted to see this land of contradictions. So today we're going to do a little bit of context building up for the rest of the um, season. So I kind of just want to start. How did Syria become Syria? That's what we're going to focus on for a little bit. So as a lot of people will know, it was Ottoman for a very long time. We're not going to go too into detail. There are other podcasts out there that go over Syria's entire history. We're just going to focus on a few specific pieces. So it was Ottoman Empire for a long time. After World War One, it got split up, or the whole Middle East got split up by what became to be known as the Sykes-Picot line. And I'm going to read two quotes here from an article by The New Yorker, which helped sum up this line. And that is, the colonial carve-up was always vulnerable. Its map ignored local identities and political preferences. Borders were determined with a ruler, arbitrarily. At a briefings for Britain's Prime Minister, H.H. H. Asquith, in 1915, Sykes famously explained, I should like to draw a line from the E in Accra to the K in Kirkuk. He slid his finger across a map, spread out on the table at number 10 Downing Street, 
from what is today a city on Israel's Mediterranean coast to the northern mountains of Iraq. Centuries after Sykes-Picot, the dual crises have stripped away the veneer of statehood imposed by the Europeans and have exposed the emptiness underneath. Iraq was managed by Britain and Syria by France, with limited nation nurturing, before both were granted independence. They flew new flags, built opulent palaces for their leaders, encouraged commercial elites and trained plenty of men in uniform. Both had weak public institutions, very small civil societies, shady and inequitous economies and meaningless laws. Both countries were racked by coups and instability. Syria went through 20 coups. Some failed, but many successful between 1949 and 1970, an average of one a year until the Assad dynasty assumed power in another coup. Interestingly, the glue that held both countries together was repressive rule and fear. So that's quite a dark summary of Syrian history. And it takes us up to Assad. Obviously, it's very short form and it's worth a lot more research. But you can kind of understand what Syria went through from its colonial period to its Assad period, I guess. So going on to Assad, Colin, I'll ask you this one. Who so Assad's an Alawite. For anyone that doesn't know much about kind of Syrian the Syrian demographics, who are the Alawites? Uh the Alawites, they're an ethno-religious group that is a, it's a sect that that came from Shia Islam and it, it is the family that uh, or it is the uh, religious sect that the Assad family is a part of. Uh, the Alawite heartland is the part of Syria that stretches from uh, like the south of Turkey on the Mediterranean down toward Lebanon. But the Alawites hold a lot of the, uh, the a lot of the Syrian coastland is their traditional territory. But uh, yeah, they uh, they venerate Ali ibn mm. Abi Talib, and he's the uh, he's the first twelver Shia Imam. They believe in. 12 divinely ordained imams they're the 12 imams and uh their last imam is in occultation right now which basically means it's he's in shia islam occultation basically just means that the mahdi which is a descendant of muhammad is uh has already been war born but is being concealed and waiting to re-emerge but that's what the uh the twelvers within shia believe and uh the alawites are of course Shia, and with them being Shia, of course, that explains a lot of the uh, Syrian regime's ties with Iran. So, What could you tell us about the Yazidis? Because I think that's a very interesting part of Syrian no. demographics that you might have okay. more of an interest no. in. Now, that is one I know much, much more about, particularly because I focused it and spent time there uh, mm. with Yazidis. So Yazidis, they're an ethno-religious group that's historically, it's been found in like southern Turkey, northern Iraq, northern Syria. But now they, in the past century, they have been mostly found within northern Iraq. I mean, you still, or you still will find them in Syria, but they're few and far between. So the Yazidis, like I said, they're an ethno-religious group. So Culture is very tied to religion within Yazidism. You can't convert and become a Yazidi. You're born a Yazidi. Both your parents are Yazidis. They're actually divided. Yazidis are divided into social castes. They have to marry within their castes. Each caste has different ritual rules that it will perform within a Yazidi community. But they are their own unique religious groups. So they're not, not Christians, not Muslims. But they are, they are people of the book, debatably. Debatably, I mean, they they believe that. Uh, well, their religion draws a lot on on other religions that have been in the area, like Zoroastrianism, and they also pull from Shia as well. But uh, 
but the Yazidis basically believe that God has had a fairly hands-off approach to uh, to human history, but he did at the beginning create seven divine angels, these divine beings. And the head divine angel is an angel named Melik Taus. And Melik Taus, uh, he takes the form of a peacock. So a lot of Yazidi temples will have Melik Taus portrayed as a peacock. And because of this, uh, you'll sometimes say that people like Yazidis worship peacocks, which isn't true. But, you know, the Melik Taus does take the form of a peacock. So it is a sacred animal for them. In addition to that, I mean, they, they do speak Kurdish. Uh, a lot of Yazidis believe that the original, that the Kurds were originally Yazidis, and then that's the original religion of the Kurdish people. The Yazidis have also been slandered uh, throughout history, uh, you know, or throughout modern history, at least, as uh, devil worshippers. And many of them refuse to utter the word Satan because of this uh, stigma that's been connected with them. So the Yazidis don't have a written tradition like Muslims and Christians do. But the Yazidis do have an oral tradition, and in their oral tradition, the Yazidis think that Melek Taus in the Garden of Eden gave Adam and Eve grain. And with this grain, they were able to realize their full potential as humans, create bread, and you know civilization comes after that. But uh, so because of the similarities of that and the serpent getting Eve to eat the apple, people have slandered them as devil worshippers. And it's also because of the story of Melik Taus giving early man the grain that uh, Yazidis don't throw bread away. They'll hoard flat bread and eat on it as long as they can. And when it's stale, they'll give it to the animals, but they don't throw it away. It's a truly fascinating community of people. It, it really, mean, it really quite is. But uh, and they're one of the most persecuted in the Middle East, unfortunately. Yes, and how many Yazidis there are is really not known. I mean, mm. estimates vary greatly, uh, from as low as three hundred thousand to up to like five hundred thousand. But n I mean, nobody really knows, and there hasn't been a census conducted recently telling us how many Yazidis are alive. Uh, you know, as we all know, ISIS launched a uh, a genocide against the Yazidis in 2014. So the 10 year anniversary of the genocide is coming up, and uh, nowadays the Yazidis are just kind of concentrated in two main areas in northern Iraq. Uh, one is around Lalish, which is their holiest temple. It's also uh, it's also the site where uh, the 12th century sheikh. Adi ibn Mosafir lived, and uh, Sheikh Adi, he was he was a he was a, a Shia, but uh, he's considered by the Yazidis to have been like an avatar of Melik Taus, and uh, his tomb is actually in Lalish. I saw his tomb while I was there. But the other place that the Yazidis live is, of course, the region around Sinjar, and Sinjar is heavily contested. So Lalish is under the Kurdistan regional government. Sinjar is in Nineveh government in federal Iraq, but it's for the most part, it's it's self-governing. It's semi-autonomous. They declared autonomy back in 2017. And this is very close to the, the border with Rojava. It's it's very close to the border. But it uh you know, Sinjar declared autonomy in 2017 and uh but nevertheless, I mean, their autonomy is not recognized the way the KRG's autonomy is recognized. And Sinjar was incredibly difficult to get inside of. The Iraqi army, uh, the NSS, which is a security agency, and Iraqi police have checkpoints all around the region. And they make it very difficult to get in. And they, you'll, we would get held for hours at checkpoints while the army was debating whether or not they would accept our Baghdad press letter. And then they'd have to call their commanders and the commanders would approve it. But it was really quite difficult to get into Sinjar. It was almost like we were going to a different, different country. But there, why, why um, would it be so hard to get into Sinjar? 
So the Kurdistan regional government and the Iraqi federal government both want to implement this thing called the Sinjar Agreement, and they want to disarm the uh, PKK-affiliated groups in Sinjar. So the Iraqi armies, they would say things to us like, oh, Sinjar's not safe, there's PKK there, you can't go. And it's like, well, we know <laughs> that we want to go see the YBS. That's the whole reason we want to go. But we can't tell the army that, obviously. So we say we're going to do humanitarian stories but uh so yeah the they make it so difficult to get into because the ybs is there and mm. the female contingent the yjs is there and because these two groups part of the sinjar alliance are pkk affiliates the kurdistan regional government doesn't like them and the iraqi army doesn't like them either and actually because of that because because the Sinjar Alliance groups are PKK affiliates, they can't go to Lalish. Even though the temple at Lalish is, uh, you know, making a pilgrimage to Lalish is something that all Yazidis are required to do. It's expected of them. And a lot of uh, men and women in the YBS and YJS can never go to Lalish because it's under the Kurdistan regional government. But That must be awful. It's uh, It's something they're very frustrated about. And the other thing is the Yazidis in Sinjar want to make very clear that they're not separatists. They say that they're defending Iraq from Turkey and Turkey is bombing Iraq, that they are part that they want to defend Iraq. They defended Iraq from ISIS. And the YBS is technically part of the Hashtal Shabi or the Popular Mobilization Forces or PMF. The PMF is, for the most part, a pro-Iran militia, and they they have they have their checkpoints all over the country. And at each one of the checkpoints, you'll see portraits of Qasem Soleimani and Mohandas. You know, Soleimani led the Quds Force in Iran. Mohandas led the PMF in Iraq. Hmm. So, so technic so this government authorized pro-Iran militia. It operates throughout federal Iraq. It's not in Kurdistan, but it's throughout federal Iraq. Technically, the YBS is a part of the PMF, but it's really only on paper so they can be a legal government-authorized militia. They're not armed or equipped by the PMF, and Hmm. sometimes they'll have standoffs with the Iraqi army, but they are technically in the PMF, so they can say that they're a legal militia defending the integrity of iraq they just want self-governance and this is exactly the kind of problem that things like the sykes picola line caused exactly during arbitrary borders between communities that have been there for thousands of years funnily enough causes lots of issues well you know kamishlo was kamishlo was cut in half in the 20s Mm. the other half of the city is uh it's actually the turkish side is smaller but it's uh nusabayin which is uh, on the Turkish side of the border wall. So the wall runs right through the city. I don't think there are many people out there that could actually picture what that would be like, having your hometown walled in half. Like it's so there's, unfathomable. Uh, there's Kurds on both sides of the city. Yeah, But that was in the 20s. That was after yeah. uh, Sykes-Picot. Yeah. But a lot, a lot of these agreements came after Sykes-Picot and after the establishment of like the Republic of Turkey as a state as it exists today. Mm. But uh, you know, back to back to Sinjar, the the region around Sinjar is very very close to Syria, and in 2014, when ISIS was sweeping through the Levant, uh, the Iraqi army and the Peshmerga actually withdrew from the region around Sinjar Mountain, and the villages to the south of the mountain were the ones that were first occupied by the islamic state and these were where the brunt of the genocide was and even almost 10 years later there's a lot of the evidence of the genocide out in the open available to see within these uh within these villages i uh i went to one home in this village and or in the small town and there are only three or four families there right now out of 50 or so families that left in 2014 
or that fled or didn't survive. But uh, shocking. Yeah, there's this small concrete house and the Islamic State used it as a de facto prison for their sex slaves. So they put bars over the windows. They uh, painted the Qibla on the wall so everybody could face Mecca and pray. And those who refused to convert were hanged outside. There was a, a noose around the corner. And the Yazidi Asayish have left it there. The noose is still hanging. And there's a lot of Islamic State graffiti. And they are periodically uh, uncovering mass graves. Because a lot of people just went missing in 2014, and they're presumed dead. And mm. uh, so around the corner from that building, there were two mass graves that they had yet to excavate and determine how many people and who was in it. But there was Islamic State graffiti everywhere, everything from propaganda, talking about you know Ali and the lover of mermaids was one thing I saw. And then there was another one about, you know, my virgins await me, uh, the Islamic State will stay, you know, the state will not fall. Um, and then, then there was, you know, more mundane stuff, like just Islamic State housing authority, like just bureaucratic signs that were left up. But the Asayish just wanted to leave all of it and not cover it up because they just, they want the people to remember how they've been persecuted. And in a way, you know, keeping that memory of the persecution alive encourage it, it makes people more supportive of the the ybs and yjs in a way because they you know they uh they see the need for it so a lot of the uh i mean pretty much everybody i met that joined that was older joined in 2014 in response to the uh, uh the genocide by isis everybody wanted to to defend makes their sense. people yeah exactly and uh and a lot of the uh a lot of the older people I spoke to, a lot of the sheiks and Mukhtars, which is a similar title, uh, who I spoke to in my initial days in Sinjar, they told me how they would always remember the PKK explicitly. They explicitly said PKK. They would always remember the PKK and YPG and what they did for Sinjar and how when the Iraqi army and the Peshmerga left, the, this, the PKK, considered a terror group by the international community, was there to fight ISIS. It says a lot, I think. Yeah, it does. Mm. And to tell a little story of my own, I was in uh, Tbilisi and found out from a friend there that there was a Yazidi temple there, one of the only outside of northern Iraq. I think there might be another one in Armenia somewhere and probably one in Turkey as well, I guess. Maybe. Um, maybe. Probably. I, I don't I, know. I mean, the one I went to in Tbilisi was absolutely fascinating. It was a cultural center as well. And there was like a big art display all around the walls inside. And he, I guess the curator or I'm not sure what the equivalent of a, the cultural leader of this temple uh, showed me and a friend around and showed us around the temple as well. And it was fascinating seeing some of the, the t tying the bits of string or scarf and the different traditions that they had. And just talking to him, he was quite clearly a man that was very pained by what had happened to him. He was quite old, but he was clearly troubled. Yeah. It was very confronting. They've, they've been through, they've been through so much. I mean, it was mm. horrifying what they went through and the fact that it was just, I mean, it, it was a genocide that happened in our lifetimes, but so few people know what it was. Mm. Yeah. Especially of such a small ethnic group already. Like that, It's not like there's millions of them before being genocided. No, no. And even, um, so I just looked it up, there are uh, small amounts of Yazidis in Turkey, but mm. in the 80s, there were about 25,000, and according to the U.S. State Department in 2019, there might be 1,000. A lot of them have fled to Germany. is a big place for Yazidis to go, and mm. uh, lesser the United States, but Germany is the main place that Yazidis go. Uh, so you mentioned that you didn't spend long enough in Syria. So are, are there parts you'd like to go visit again? And if so, oh, of course. What, would you, what would you like to do? 
Of course, there's there's so much in Syria that I would love to to see. I mean, I didn't get to go to Raqqa or Kobani; they were just too far. Uh, I spent time in Hasaka, Derik, Kamishlo, Tel Nusri, and I went to Al Hol camp as well. But I, uh, I I did quite a lot. Oh, and Jinwar as well. I did quite a lot in my one week in Rojava. Jinwar uh, was was really eye opening. Um, seeing the prison in Hasaka was also very interesting. It's a very tense place and a ticking time bomb. And as we saw the other day, the uh, autonomous administration announced it was going to begin putting uh, the ISIS detainees on trial because their home countries refused to take them. Certainly quite a infamous thing, especially in Western Europe in the last few years of not taking back war criminals from your country. Yeah. No, in, in the United States as well. I mean, in, Popular opinion says leave them there, mm. but popular opinion doesn't necessarily recognize that if that happens, then it's just going to give rise to the caliphate again. Because mm. they're all still there. Like uh, one of the, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sexual abuse in our whole camp committed mm. by the women in the camp. So all the men are in prison and the women are in the camp. And when the children will get old enough to reproduce, the women will rape them to make more kids for the caliphate so they can indoctrinate them into this ideology. The uh, the ISIS version of the Hitler youth, kids, cubs of the caliphate, still exists. And they're still indoctrinating these kids who are born in Al-Hol with this Islamic State ideology. And it's, it's proving very... Yeah, it's proving... It's just it's it's pretty much impossible for the SDF to to repress that. I mean, I, I went no to support. yes, I, I went to one of a few rehabilitation centers on my last day, and it was a place where uh, teenage teenage boys were living. It, it was like a group home for teenage boys, and they were giving them English lessons. They play foosball, tennis, uh, soccer, and they were just trying to get these kids out of the Islamic State ideology. It was a rehabilitation center for kids aged like 7 to like 16. And it was a very interesting place to see. And I, I hope that those rehabilitation centers are successful. Because right now it's just, it's a, uh, it's, it's not looking good. Because there's been no long-term plan from the international community about what's to do with all these islamic state families and prisoners i mean so like the guy i spoke to is from trinidad and the government in trinidad has no plans of taking him or other people from trinidad back uh you know whole camp it's even more difficult because at least in hasika prison you know that everybody there is an isis fighter Whereas in the refugee camp of Al Hol, it's mixed, and, and so the camp is divided into two separate sections. There's a section for the locals from Iraq or Syria, and then there's a section from the foreigners, and they're like Chechens, North Africans. Uh, I met a lot of Moroccans while I was there, or not a lot, but I, I spoke with a few Moroccans, and Moroccan is one of the more prominent uh, nationalities in Al Hol camp. Mm. The, the European families are in Al Roj, which is a camp not too far from there. Hmm. But uh, within the local section of Al Hol, it's very difficult for the SDF to tell who is a civilian who is detained in the wrong place at the wrong time and who's actually an Islamic State supporter. Hmm. Because it's, it's very, like, I mean, if they're a foreign national. Like if it's if it's a Moroccan or a Chechen woman, then obviously she's part of an ISIS family. But if it's a local, it's very difficult to tell. And actually, last year, uh, the SDF rescue they were able to identify two Yazidi women, and uh, they took them out of the camp. And that was an issue that. In Sinjar, before I went to Al Hol camp, a lot of Yazidis asked me about that, and they were saying how there there are 
Yazidis trapped in El Hol camp and they just, you know, it's difficult for the SDF to tell who's there and they just want they want their people to get out of the camps and they they say that they'll let them back into the community that that seems to be the case from everybody I spoke with. Mm. But it's just it's a it's a very very difficult position. And of course Turkish air airstrikes on camp guards definitely make the situation much more volatile. It's an absolute horrendous decision for anyone to get militarily involved with these camps, I think. Well, it's uh, if you're to blow up a guard post, you can destabilize the camp and mm-hmm. further destabilize the autonomous administration. Because at this point, there's a massive wall in between Turkey and Syria. I mean, the man I spoke to from Trinidad and thousands of other ISIS fighters you know, would fly into Turkey and then cross the border into either Iraq or Syria. But after the SDF has, for the most part, defeated ISIS and they have their certified autonomy, then the Turkish authorities put up the border wall. Mm. So it's uh, it's uh, quite telling. How are photographers and the press generally treated on the ground in Syria? Everybody was very nice. I mean, I... I've been in places where people have been hostile towards photographers. This was not one of those situations. Uh, Everybody I spoke with was eager to meet me, happy to have their photo taken. They wanted their stories told. A lot of different people have just been like, when is it going to publish? Send me links. (laughs) Contrast that to Haiti where, you know, I almost got jumped at a riot in Port Al-Prince. Like it's, where it's like they don't like press or then like even protests in the United States where I've had rocks and fireworks thrown at me for Mm. photographing at a protest. But yeah, so I've been in places where people have been pretty hostile with press. Mm. Uh, The Trump stop the steal protests is another great example of that. But uh, Northeast Syria was not the case. There was pretty good press freedom never got stopped at checkpoints like i've been in situations before where i've gone through military checkpoints and they demand to look in your bag and check your camera and go through your memory cards never once happened i never got stopped in syria i mean the autonomous administration has done a pretty good job with press freedom Hmm. as soon as i crossed the border i sat down with the asayish I spoke with them about what my intentions were for Syria, swapped phone numbers, and they gave me a little press slip that allowed me to work in the country or autonomous zone. So there was a lot of press freedom. Anyone I wanted to talk to, I could talk to. Everybody was fairly, fairly relaxed. Hmm. The one thing that people were a little bit hesitant about, they were hesitant about me taking pictures of the Ashalon portraits and of the couple of PKK flags I saw. Fair. Because, you know, Turkey's saying that there's PKK there and that's why they're bombing there. Mm. And it, it requires a lot of nuance to understand that, yes, YPG and PKK have the same ideology of democratic confederalism. They have the same ideological leader of the imprisoned Ashalon, but they're, they're, separate distinct groups with separate missions i mean there is definitely a lot of overlap and there's coordination but they're not the same group and but any pkk iconography people were just kind of hesitant to allow be photographed just because they fear it could be lending credence to uh what turkey has to say regarding like you know there's pkk in syria Hmm. yeah it makes a lot of sense of why there'd be that kind of border up a little bit of not wanting yes. to display the pkk but a... which is but which is weird because I, I mean i still saw it i mean if you're that concerned yeah. with it don't 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 i mean and especially at the cemetery in kamishlo because a lot of the people buried there are pkk so mm. of course they're going to have pkk flags at the cemetery in kamishlo i mean why wouldn't they i mean those were pkk that were killed mm. but it's just you know it allows Turkey Treading to say a fine that, line, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like after Raqqa fell, um, the YPG immediately put up an Ashalon portrait and uh, they had to take it down. The coalition pressured them to take it down and uh, 
they didn't put any oppo stuff up until long after but it's a uh, it's a very complicated situation and iraq and syria have several dozen different militias between the two of them and it's a uh, they're both very contested countries and we'll move on slightly from syria just to ask a few questions to finish off just about journalism so okay. what do you think for the future of journalism uh one thing that concerns me a lot is the use of ai i i very much don't like ai generated images being used as press i mean sometimes sometimes it makes sense like if it's a it's a situation that wasn't able to be photographed i get it but in general i think it should be avoided that's different from using ai in, in editing though that's a, that's a completely different issue Using artificial intelligence in Adobe Lightroom to edit an image is completely different from using AI to generate a brand new image. And it's the generation of images I don't like because it's just, it, they're not real. There's, mm. they're, they're overly contrived and oftentimes wildly inaccurate, cliche, and it's just... There, it doesn't instill a lot of trust in the media when you use an AI-generated image. Mm. And unfortunately, we see lots of outlets do that. Mm. Especially when it's based off other people's work. Yeah. Like you still have to submit like almost a training portfolio for that of real people's work. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's very frustrating. And it's not like mm. photos sell for very much anyway. No. I mean, nobody, nobody who files photos with a newspaper with a photo agency and gets their work published in a newspaper. You don't make much doing photo agency work. Mm. So the fact that I mean, photos selling for a dollar, like I'd, I'd much rather get my one to six dollars and have a, po- a picture in the newspaper than yeah. see an artificial and see AI get it, which is incredibly frustrating. People are losing trust in the media, uh, which for better and worse. I mean, it's working for me because I've been independent. and uh, But I feel like a lot of people are waking up to the fact that a lot of the mainstream media does have inherent biases in it. A a lot of Americans and Westerners in general, I, I know I'm sure the same as in your country, people are frustrated with that and looking for independent outlets that are still reputable, they're still on the ground, but people mm-hmm. are looking for independent groups to to get their news from. Certainly. It's something I and mean it's... the modern insurgents based off really. That kind of Exactly. Strive for something different. And notwithstanding the fact that so often there's no nuance in a lot of mainstream stuff. Like people mm. people will just give the YPG context and say oh, by the way, they're affiliated with the PKK, which is considered a terrorist group by Turkey in the United States. But they don't explain it. They don't approach it with nuance. Everything's for a soundbite. Yeah. Whereas with the kind of work that you can do on, say, Instagram or YouTube or any of these new services that independent people are using, yeah, you can really tell any story you want, and it's kind of changed the game. Yeah. Now, one thing I will say is incredibly frustrating about Instagram is the fact that if you are independent media and you are talking about these kinds of things, you're going to get shadow banned, and it's incredibly yeah. un. The damn guidelines. I... Yeah. They well, they don't release the guidelines. <laughs> they won't tell us. They won't tell us what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I hate the fact that I can't just submit. Like, why can't I just give Instagram? copies of all my different press cards and then they can (laughs) just see and it's like okay i have a press accreditation from the nigerian government and the ukrainian government and the iraqi government and i'm a member of all these other groups in the united states it's like it should be pretty freaking clear are you currently shadow banned yeah my content is not eligible for recommendation so we Uh, nice All the all so, the cool people are shadow banned. So I urge everyone to find or well, we'll plug Colin at the end. Find Colin's Instagram and find the modern insurgent and 
share us to everyone you know because instagram's yes, not helping do. either of us please do it's it's incredibly frustrating there's yeah it's incredibly frustrating so what conflict in the world worries you the most i don't know i mean while i was i, I was at the ybs base in hanasor in sinjar and we were there was a big tv in the meeting room and i was with these ybs commanders and we're all just are we're doing our interviews and i'm speaking with them but on the background, like the TV is watching the Turkish election and everybody was just watching with so much anticipation while I was in Iraq and Syria. Everybody was mm. obsessed with which way was Turkey going to go and with good reason because, I mean, the general consensus both in Sinjar and in Syria is that Turkish incursion is coming. More incursion by Turkey is coming. While I was in Syria, there were airstrikes targeting different YPG commanders while I was in Sinjar YBS bases were bombed never while I was there always like it was always like I would be in Sinjar and then I'd leave and the next day it would get bombed mm. but Sinjar was bombed four times four times I think while I was there it's they're they're all digging in and preparing themselves and Sinjar mountain is covered with tunnels and bunkers and both of them suspect that conflicts are coming I, I I think Turkish incursion in either of those areas is a possibility. When the Republic of Turkey was founded, there was an agreement with the powers that be that basically said, if uh, if Iraq does not control all of its territory within a hundred years by 2024, then Turkey reserves the right to reclaim some of its historical territories in northern Iraq, like in. Nineveh governorate and Duhok and around Kirkuk and there are a lot of Turkmen around Kirkuk and you'll see pro-Turkish graffiti in Kirkuk that are like Kirkuk is Turkish uh you know we will we will be part of Turkey again and and that's something a lot of people are worried about there because Iraq is very clearly does not govern all of its territory it's a mm -hmm. country of competing militias I mean while I was there I was with a half dozen different militias and it's uh so yeah incursion from turkey is a very real possibility very fair but then there are other outside of the middle east uh i mean the syrian civil war is winding down especially with assad re-entering the arab league but turkish incursions or that's a completely different conflict I mean, because there's—I mean—that's the thing. So many of these conflicts are over, overlapping. I don't know. It's all—it's all—it all gives cause to be worried. Um, my final question is because I know it's uh, this has been recommended to me by a few of our writers. Have you got any advice for young aspiring conflict journalists? All right. Uh, my first piece of advice will definitely be walk before you run get good at using get good at photography get good at writing uh get good at speaking i'm not the best public speaker by any means as is uh clear to anybody listening but it is something that you should be practicing and working on but also uh you can't jump right into conflict it's it's not possible to jump right into conflict if you're a uh, 19, 20 something, and you want to do this, you can't start at conflict. You have to build up to that. So I would find activist groups in your community and just don't think of yourself at the moment as an aspiring conflict photographer, because you're not that yet. Become a good documentary photographer first. Be able to tell us, because you can do that anywhere in the world. You can find a social issue within your community and you can document it, whether it be like drug use or uh, crime, uh, different activism. You can, you can find activist groups on social media, get in touch with them. You are gonna have to build a reputation for yourself and build credibility. Like uh, I've been able to sit down and talk with anti-fascists in Atlanta. And you know now that I've been in multiple conflicts and Rojava, which is like a leftist poster child, I, I have the ability to do that. But, 2020 Colin couldn't have done that you have to you have to build up to these things 
So, uh, yeah, find activists online that you can photograph. Figure out how to get a student press card within your home country because, uh, you know, you might get arrested. I've been I've been handcuffed at protests in the United States and my press cards have gotten me set free. So definitely get a press card. Don't go out there without a press card because, I mean, you you definitely will need one, even if you make it yourself, as long as it's something official and links to your own work. I actually, uh, I met a guy who got accreditation from Ukraine. One of the things it requires is you submit a picture of your press card. He submitted a picture of a homemade press card that he made himself but on the press card was a QR code that went to his website, which is where it had some of his photography and places his work had been published. So that worked, but definitely get something that proves that your press focus on protests in your home country and social movements and documentary issues in your home country. And that'll make it easier to, uh, you know, for when you're ready to get in a conflict. And of course, if you're European, Ukraine is right there. So it might be a little bit easier for aspiring conflict photographers on your side of the world. Okay. So I think that is us finished for today, Colin. All so right. Is, well, is thank you anything, for having is there me. Anything you'd like to promote? Uh, I, I haven't dropped my articles yet, but uh, fairly soon. I will have a couple of articles being released on my experiences with the Nigerian armed forces and their auxiliary militias in Northeast Nigeria. Those articles will be dropping very soon. And uh, when they do, I'll send the link. And then after that, currently in the works right now, I am working on all of my stories from Iraq and Syria. So breaking down my time in Rojava, Sinjar, and the YBS and their fight against Turkey and also the Iranian opposition parties. So I was mm. with two other militant groups. I was with the Kurdistan freedom party, the PAK and also the Komala, which is a, uh, a leftist. There are actually two Komalas. One was Marxist Leninist years, social Democrat. There was a schism. I was with the sock Dems, but, uh, all of those groups are fighting against Iran. So I have several articles that are going to come out within the coming months, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Hmm. I implore everyone to check out your work. And as I said Thank earlier, you. follow you on Instagram, because I, uh, me and everyone else at The Modern Insurgent adores the work that you've put out so far. Thank you. I very much appreciate that. I, I really love hearing that, man. Thank you. And so if anyone wants to find any of the other work that the Modern Insurgent have done, you can find us at the Modern Insurgent on Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, and most importantly, Patreon, where we are desperate for people to support us. So thank you very much. The Modern Insurgent is your impartial, independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, podcasts, reports and scholarly articles. Reporting on the underreported. reported